For example, if uh, you're, in a, you're, you're a member of the board and if you weren't probing this the, the highest level of decision-making in an organisation, if you weren't asking probing and inquisitive questions, then you are not doing your job. But you take that level and you go down to someone who might be a junior manager, mm-hmm. there's a different view of curiosity. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, don't keep asking a question, just go and do your job. That was the voice of David Bickett, the guest on this episode of The Knowledge Mill. I'm your host, Greg Yoakum. I've known David for a few years now, as our PhD candidatures at UTS, the University of Technology, Sydney, overlapped. Myself, David, and our mutual friend, Lewis Wales, who listeners will hopefully hear from in another episode, would get together over coffee for weekly accountability meetings to keep each other honest. This continued even after the COVID-19 pandemic hit Australian shores in March 2020. We just simply moved our meetings onto Zoom. Now that we're back on campus, David and I continue to be good friends and colleagues. The thing that made David unique among PhD researchers at the UTS Business School was the extensive professional experience that he brought to his candidature. Before embarking on his PhD journey, David held various roles in corporate leadership, developing and executing key strategic initiatives in both for- and non-profit organizations. In 25 years of this work, David's career took him around the world to the UK, Japan, Singapore, and of course, Australia. As David recounts at the start of our conversation, it was this industry work that led him to research and curiosity and the role that it plays in the strategic decision-making of top management team executives. While curiosity is often viewed through a psychological lens, David considered curiosity as a social practice in his PhD research. This was a turn in his candidature that he discusses in this episode. Ultimately, David's research aimed to understand how curiosity as a social practice assists top management team executives in making strategic decisions and in managing organizational ambidexterity. When we sat down to record this episode, David was finishing the minor revisions to his thesis that his examiners had requested. By the time you hear this episode, his PhD will have been conferred. So let me be among the first to say, congratulations, Dr. Bickett. This episode of The Knowledge Mill was recorded in my office at UTS on November 23rd, 2022. Show notes, including more information about some of the topics that David and I discuss, can be found at theknowledgemill.com slash episode one. That's episode and the numeral one. Hello, David. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the program. Thank you. <laughs> Glad you could be here. Our first ever recording. Yes, a pleasure. Uh, we just had a little bit of a chat before we started this recording about uh, the different things to talk about and how to tell these stories. And, and uh, you know, we're still kind of figuring out, or I'm still figuring out what I want this podcast to be. Uh, but I think a place that makes sense to start is how did you find yourself doing a PhD well, for me, it's been a, a really long journey. It really started because I, I am, I've completed a, a professional life doing lots of things, uh, both locally and internationally in senior management. So, um, and that created a bit of a stimulus for me. But actually going into a little bit more detail, um, my uh, reason, or not so much reason, but um, I guess the catalyst that really drove me forward was that some years ago, um, I came across a person who was a, uh, had a PhD in laser physics and um, we became very good friends and we spoke a lot and um, he, 
he intrigued me the way he went around doing his research and the things that he was trying to do. And I could also could, could see that he was really focused on contributing to greater society. And uh, for me, that was uh, a real sort of insight into saying, well, you know, this is not just about getting a qualification, but it's also what can you do with that qualification and how can you go about making things happen for the betterment of others. So um, anyway, he, uh, he and I are still friends. Um, and then I went to work for an organisation which had at that time the most PhDs in Australia working for it. And um, I met obviously a lot of people who, who had doctorates and um, in different areas, mainly in chemical engineering and uh, one in um, nuclear physics. So they also intrigued me the way they talked about their topic. But what was really interesting in every case was they were extremely passionate about things. And um, they were passionate about what their research could do um, for others and what their contribution was to the academic field. And um, I've always loved learning. So learning and academia um, um, were, have always been things I've, that have inspired me. So a few years ago, um, in 2000, and let me think about this just for a second, in about uh, 2006, um, I had the opportunity to go to England um, as part of my job. And I spent four years over in the UK um, in a senior management role. And I really enjoyed that. But I also came, I had, had a friend who was an Oxford uh, graduate and had a PhD. And uh, we spoke a lot about, you know, does it matter at what time in life you go for a PhD? Mm. I mean, should you get it when you really come out of uni and just you know complete your um your undergrad and then go into starting a phd well there, there are many debates about is that a good thing or a bad thing right and uh so for me um i, I thought a lot about it then in 2010 i returned to australia and i had my own business running um I, and i decided to think well you know now is a good time to try and do a PhD. So I applied, I, I got in contact with a person who actually became my principal supervisor and miraculously he agreed to take me on. <laughs> so that was, that, was, that was good, but it was, it's been, I guess to summarize all that, it's been a long journey. It's not something that I thought about in five minutes. It's something that I spent a lot of time thinking about to get yeah. it right. And eventually um, felt very comfortable in taking it on. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, being a full-time PhD student at a later time in life, um, I've really enjoyed. I think it's really beneficial. Yeah, you were able to see yourself doing it before you even started. Yeah, that's which right. Which I think is valuable. Mm. Uh, I didn't have that necessarily, <laughs> <laughs> as you and I have spoken about before. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, the, even the... Uh, the book that we spoke about once upon a time, who gets to be smart. Mm. Uh, there is the chapter in there about uh, the author Bree Lee takes a trip to Oxford mm. uh, to visit a friend who is a uh, Rhodes scholar mm. and she's on campus and she's immersed in that lifestyle. And, and she has kind of the same thing where she feels like this is uh, 
a world that she doesn't have access to but mm. would like access to and that's kind of how i feel but so it's interesting what you say that you were surrounded by people who have phds uh in a professional setting uh in an industry setting i should say mm. and you were able to see kind of because the thing that I tell my wife all the time is that something much more useful in doing a PhD than intelligence is curiosity, mm, mm. Uh, which I have a feeling will be a theme of our conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you, you kind of went about it then. You spoke to your supervisor before you even applied to the uni. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so I had, I mean, I had made my mind up at that time that that's exactly what I wanted to do. I'd also made my mind up that I wanted to do this full time mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I just couldn't. I think there's a stage in life when you just have to do things as not so much as quick as uh, you possibly can do them, but in an efficient way. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that was also in my mindset. Yeah. And um, but I also wanted to try and find someone supervisory who was interested in the topic mm -hmm. and who I could relate to. And so I spent how I found my supervisor was doing some research on who are academics in the field that, um, that I was interested in. Now, that's really interesting because um, one thing you learn when you do a PhD is you might start on one track, but you end up somewhere else. Yep. And that's exactly what happened to me. Yep. So where did you start and, and where did you end up then? Okay, so um, I started looking at it from uh, leadership and um, curiosity in the role of uh, leadership. And uh, that was more um, of a direction that I, that I wanted to go down for a long time. I was always interested in innovation. In mm -hmm. fact, when I did my master's degree, I, I was really, you know, my thesis in my master's was around uh, innovation. Um, but I, I did my uh, master's at... Um, at UOW and the thing that um, I was very fortunate with I met a uh, fantastic academic who was responsible for the program that I was in Professor Grace McCarthy and um, I spoke to Grace a lot particularly around the latter part of my masters and uh, I was talking to her about my interest in potentially doing a PhD mm -hmm. and she said to me David you know what you've got to do before you even think about that to some extent, is what do you want to do? What, what, I mean, what do you want your research question to be? What, what do you want to achieve? What's your contribute to, to humanity in some way? Um, so I came up with research questions. Now, this is a real interesting point. I reckon over nine months, I would regularly present Grace with a potential research question. Yeah, right. And uh, she would look at it and she'd say, mm, no, I don't think that's quite right yet, David. And uh, eventually I got it out of her why she kept on pushing back on my research questions. And it was the fact that she said to me, and I think it was most probably a very subtle but a very important learning. She said, David, what you're doing at the moment is you're looking at the trees. What you really need to look at in your research question is the twigs. Right. Yeah. So in other words, trying to, I was looking at far greater uh, expansion in my uh, research question mm -hmm. than I could possibly research in in in, in, a, in a PhD. Yeah. And uh, you know, in, she, in just one PhD. Yeah, in one PhD. <laughs> yeah, she said, "How many PhDs do you want to do?" Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, I mean, that was a really important point. So I I, I think 
she was saying it was all about focus, but keep your research question extremely focused. Keep it primarily as simple as you can make it, but as impactful at the same time as mm-hmm. you can make it. So um, that was that was a great learning, and I've never forgot that. And I, I think even as I went through and uh, you know put together my uh, research questions in my PhD thesis or for my PhD thesis, that was in the back of my mind all the time. You know, look at the twigs. Am I really asking about the twig here? Is this a real focused, intensive mm. question that is easy, not so much easy, but is worthy of answering right. and can it be answered? You know, and I think that that was, that was a good, another good starting point. So that was pre-PhD. Yep. But it certainly got me to think that right from the beginning, yeah. It's not a walk in the park. You've really got to think about everything you do. Yeah, that's. I think most people who would start a PhD, uh, that's their first year mm. is mm. is starting with the forest and trying to find the twig. Yeah. Uh, so you had you had a bit of an advantage that way coming in already with that focus. Yeah. Uh, so where where did you go from there? Then you reached out to your supervisor here at UTS. Yeah, Jochen Schweitzer. Yeah. Um, and I was extremely lucky. I mean. Uh, um, I came in with a cohort, um, a very small cohort started at the same time I started in the business school. And, um, you know, and eventually I ended up with um, four, four uh, supervisors on my panel. Uh, Jochen Schweitzer as the, as the um, principal supervisor, but also had uh, um, Professor Stuart Clegg, who I was, I'll never, ever forget as such an impactful, uh, deep thinker. Um, and such a credible academic. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had uh, someone like uh, Marco Berti, who is brilliant. You know, he um, his field is paradox, um, and I learnt so much from Marco in in that area. So that was that was uh, another fortunate point, and an, an, another one, Paul Brown. Uh, Paul was um, really inspirational in terms of. Um, looking at things and challenging, and not in a complex way, but in a way that was sort of relevant. But uh, he tried to you know, steer me down this issue of thinking creativity and thinking more creatively. So mm-hmm. I think um, you know, not everybody gets that option. Most people are lucky to get two supervisors. Um, yeah. you know, here I ended up with four. I still, to this day, don't know how to do that. And, and <laughs> Jochen was the, the catalyst for that because he was the person that sort of my supervisory panel out before I even started. Right. And that can be a, uh, I find that it was the same for me. My principal supervisor sorted out my panel with mm. two other people who I had never met before, mm. uh, but it ended up being a dream team. Mm. Uh, whereas I hear from some students who come in uh, and, and try to assemble their own panels. It doesn't always work out so well. So no, I- <laughs> no, no, because the, see, the other thing is, um, I mean, I have a lot, to uh, I, I owe a lot to Stuart Clegg because, um, as I said, uh, when I started out this, I had a, my initial consideration was around um, leadership and creativity, um, and it didn't end up that way at all. Stuart, uh, together with Jochen, you know, steered me down a, a slightly different path related but but different Mm -hmm. and i think that that seems to be from what i've heard from other phd students over time seems to be a normal type of part of the process because you learn as you go yeah yeah absolutely that's Mm. i think 
sometimes that gets lost is that we're still students mm. uh, when you're doing a PhD. You're here to learn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a bit like an apprenticeship mm. in a way, especially yeah. if you want to be an academic or a researcher. Yeah. Uh, so that, that shifted you toward curiosity. Uh, and well, I want to talk more about this as we go, but you are now at the very end. Mm. Uh, so you have the benefit of hindsight. Maybe even you've been reflective lately, mm. Uh, mm. since that's a component of, of your research as well. Yeah. Uh, we have that in common, our, our research interests. Uh, just to tell the, uh, because the listener would have heard a little bit about your research in the introduction, but uh, tell us a bit about what you did end up that final kind of research question and the work that you did, because something else was you had a bit of a challenge when the pandemic came on. Mm. Uh, you had to do a bit of a pivot with your, your data collection as well. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, my research, um, coming back to, you know, the stimulus for my research, it really started uh, when I was a, a professional uh, business person. And um, I spent a lot of time in strategic meetings. So I became really interested in strategy and um, how strategy was formulated and how strategic decisions were made. So um, sometimes these things can be taken for granted. Mm -hmm. But I was also stimulated uh, further down the track, um, not long after I started. Jochen sent me an article out of Harvard Business Review and it was called The Business Case for Curiosity by... um, a uh, person out of Harvard, um, Gino Francesco. And um, I read, I don't know how many times I've read that article. Mm-hmm. I just reread it and reread it. Even now, I still go back and reference it. And in my PhD thesis, I referenced it yeah, as well. Because in a, in a relatively short article, it covered a lot of things that I reflected on were things that I had experienced or observed. Right. But... Uh, I also believe that there was other options out of that research that the research hadn't covered. Mm-hmm. So um, primarily how it went was, and what, what my, the whole stimulus, my research question really was around the role of curiosity in strategic decision-making. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I broke that down into three sub-questions or, as well, one of which was around paradox theory. How does, how does curiosity help uh, manage paradoxes in in uh, strategic decision making mm-hmm. and the other one was i also wanted to try and in fact the the first paper i wrote was a theoretical paper and it was more around um the role of curiosity as a social practice yep so um up, for those people who are familiar with curiosity it's very much in the psychological domain and and really is, is there are many psychology articles written about curiosity but the way I saw it in in my experience was more a social issue. So the strategic decisions aren't made by one single individual. They're made by a number of individuals coming together and debating and discussing things before they make a decision. Mm -hmm. And they ask lots of questions and they need to become quite curious. So it became obvious to me that there was a social and material element of curiosity. So my research actually focused on the social material or the social material uh, world of curiosity which hadn't been covered before mm-hmm. it really just been absorbed in the psychology domain as a social issue of one whereas i was looking at it as a social issue of many um, 
and uh, where many people, uh, curiosity enabled the uh, emergence of strategic decisions. Mm -hmm. And so it was that that stimulus uh, based on past history, insight, and together with my research that uh, that um, I was able to focus on right throughout my PhD. I now, when I reflect on it, I enjoyed it so much. Um, what I've got to do now is start publishing the papers. Um, <laughs> my thesis was by compilation, so I need to publish at least three. Well, I don't need to, but I, I want to mm-hmm. uh, publish the three papers that form the basis of that. I don't think I realized you hadn't done that yet. So you wrote them as journal articles, yeah, and that's how they're in your thesis, but you haven't gone through the peer review process yet no 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 so the only review i've had is by um my um uh examiners phd examiners um which is quite beneficial because um i'm hoping that will help me when i actually submit these papers Mm -hmm. uh that they're already pre-edited to some extent yeah that's right yeah so um yeah so no i hadn't i hadn't uh published it although i did um uh, send one paper to my theory paper, but I think the journal I sent it to felt it was a little bit too much for one journal uh, article. So, um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to that next stage. Yeah, nice. Mm. And you are now at the very very end, mm. uh, yeah. as, as we were talking about before we started recording. You have submitted your thesis mm-hmm. uh, with all of the changes, the, the requested changes. Mm. And now you're basically just waiting on word from the uni that the paperwork has been filed and you will be conferred. Correct. So in our in the very first episode of this podcast, you're probably setting the record for the person closest to not being eligible to be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 But that's so... One of the things that uh, that I wanted to ask you, you are here at the end, and I I got very busy at the end of my PhD, and I didn't have so much time for reflection. Uh, I'm, I'm actually now doing that on a bit of a delay. I'm, I'm thinking back to that experience as I start to look ahead to different research projects uh, and building on some of that that prior work. But if you could, and and for you as well, it's it's challenging with the pandemic, which caused an interruption mm-hmm. for you in the middle. If you could go back and see yourself at the beginning, is there any advice that you would give yourself or do you think that you would have done anything differently at all? Um, I, I think there are things I could have done. I'll, I'll come back to the point that you've raised a couple of times now and that is around um, my research during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, um, part of the, as everybody knows, you've got to go through an ethics program before you can start your research. So it has to be signed off by the university ethics area or department. Um, And that wasn't such a hard thing. And I had great support from the university when I explained what my research was about. And um, and so uh, I started that most probably a little bit later than what I should have. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Then I went out starting approaching organisations to undertake or to agree to do my research with me um, or to give me permission to do research in their organisation. So that was, that was a really interesting point. Now, um, I'd approached a chairman of a large listing 
company who agreed that said that was a great idea and he put me onto somebody who could look after me throughout this research program now the pandemic the pandemic then started to gain momentum and the organization that um, I wanted to do my research with became so focused and engulfed in coping with the uh, pandemic mm-hmm. that they couldn't spend time with me on my research. So what that basically meant, I lost around going backwards and forwards in internal communication. I would have lost over six months of time right. in starting my research. could have even been longer. Mm. Um, and then working with Yoken, we decided to, I should try someone else. Um, and by trying someone else, it most probably was fortuitous because I ended up getting two other organizations who said, yeah, we'd like to do that too. Interestingly, in the same industry, mm-hmm. um, but under different circumstances. So, um, what that meant, cause I was doing a qualitative research project, um, was that I, and it was a case study. So I needed to, in fact, it came to two case studies. Um, I needed to be able to talk to people. But one of the things that I couldn't do, which I had to modify, was change my research to some extent because I couldn't sit down like we're sitting down and I couldn't uh, watch body language or I couldn't do any of that because it was all conducted yep. over uh, Microsoft Teams. Right. Um, some, you know, both these organizations were, were sort of um, focused on Microsoft rather than Zoom. but. That's neither here nor there. But the the reality is that they were both in the virtual space. Mm -hmm. And and so that had its limitations. And also when they ran meetings, which I was observing their meetings, um, they were also in the virtual space. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't bring people into the office. Um, They also had to to, uh, conduct them. So what that meant was I had to modify my research and methodology to cope with those changes mm-hmm. uh, to the, I guess, the structure of the research. And um, to some extent, one could say that was that was sort of beneficial. So what is, what is the learning out of all this? I think one of the things is be really clear when you uh, are trying to get a, um, a company to be your partner in this in your research Mm -hmm. but also get the commitment and find the person who is the decision maker early as soon as you can so then there is a commitment to proceed with Mm -hmm. your research if you don't find that person you can be wallowing around and finding it very difficult to get off the ground Um, just to give you an example of that uh, when I did find the two organizations and the two leaders um, in those organizations, and they're both prominent organizations in Australia, um, the the thing that, that happened was they gave me a commitment. They organized people for me to interview. That's the other thing. Yeah, right. You know, rather than me running around thinking, who can I interview next? And <laughs> what department are they in? And how do I make sure that I've got a cross-section of views and, mm. you know, diversity of ideas and different perspectives um once i'd actually brief them appropriately in line with my ethics um then it was really easy whereas i think in the first instance even though the the covid19 pandemic had started um people weren't focused on being able to help me so much and weren't as committed 
uh, in the first organization. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I take anything out of it, I think it's that, is to get decision makers. And one of the problems with, with for me, that's not such a big thing because I've been a senior executive in the past. So getting access to and being able to talk to senior executives is not a big thing. Um, whereas I think junior researchers, generally speaking, might find that a bit of a daunting task. Mm -hmm. um, so what I would strongly suggest is they work with their um, their um, principal supervisor and to enable them to get to the decision makers. That getting to the decision maker in commencing research, I think my great learning was that's absolutely paramount. Yeah, I would agree with you. My And I learned that by accident yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because I, the person who I approached, uh, ended up fortuitously being promoted to uh, general manager within the organization that I did my case study on. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was only then that I realized, oh, that's I need that internal champion uh, yeah. who, because what I was doing uh, with design thinking was a bit abstract. It was it was new. My study was the first in the in the field, the first academic study. Mm -hmm. And so I needed that, that person on the inside, not only to say this research is important and we need to cooperate and we're going to get something out of this, but also to, to sell the idea. She really saw the value in the idea and, and that they would get a lot of value out of going through the process with me. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I think if, uh, if it had gone the other way, if she, rather than getting promoted, had maybe you know taken a promotion in a different organization, I would have been sunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or I would have gone and asked if we could do it at the new place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's that important, that, mm. that internal person who mm. can organize the interviews and maybe alert you to, you should really talk to this person, and maybe that wasn't even on your map. Yeah. And brought into the scope of what you're thinking about or how, for you, curiosity does feed into strategy. Yeah. Or maybe doesn't. Uh, did you... When you were going through your research and you started doing your interviews, was there anything, obviously you would have had some expectations. You were looking for certain things. You're asking certain kind of questions. Uh, did anything surprise you when you were going through that? Uh, yes. Yes and no. Let me go back to the Gino article just for a moment. Mm -hmm. That's the Harvard Business one, uh, Review article that I spoke about. Um, Francesco Gino, uh, she um, found in her, and also uh, another psychology uh, article that was in Harvard Business Review by another American scholar by the name of Todd Cashton. Um, both of them did large-scale research, 3,000, N equals 3,000 for each of them, mm. right? So it's quite, quite big yes, research. Yes, yeah, and, um, and so their survey data indicated that um, senior executives in organisations theoretically believe they encourage curiosity. Um, but the research actually found that when people started asking questions, they started turning off the tap. They didn't want to listen. They haven't got time for this. Right. Know? So it becomes a temporal issue. I don't. I don't have time to listen to all these questions. Yeah. I just want to get on. This is I an want, interruption to my this, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so curiosity on one hand was encouraged, but on the other hand was discouraged. Mm. And so my research actually, um, actually picked up a similar outcome. So, but the other thing that I guess really perplexed me in my research um, was that. Um, 
I was fortunate enough to to interview a chairman of the board, and um, and when I uh, introduced myself and talked about the topic, she said, "You know what, David? Curiosity is a word we don't use." Right. That's interesting. Yeah, um, and they associated curiosity with, uh, you know, going to a party or kids or, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so, um, and curiosity covers all those things. It's, you know, it's a, it's, it's part of, it's part of us. And um, so I was really perplexed by that. Um, and she said, look, you know, we most probably refer to it as being inquisitive. Primarily, it's the same mm-hmm. thing, but using a different term. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same uh, with a lot of a lot of um, executives I spoke to seem to shun the word curiosity. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, even though they were curious mm. and they did ask questions, they wouldn't exist if they didn't ask questions, yeah. and they wouldn't be able to make good strategic decisions if they didn't. Yeah. Um, but uh, so not in all cases, but that was something that I noticed. Um, a lot, yeah. you know. It was. It wasn't the fact that uh, curiosity was a bad word per se. It was more. It's a. It, it's a word association more than anything else. Mm. Um, how they viewed the word, and yeah. uh, in fact, this, I went through my some of my notes the other day, um, reflecting on my research, and I did notice it a few times where people said, "Ah, oh, you know, it's it's." Uh, it, it was more of a lexicon issue, you know, um, than anything else, and. Um, but it did come out as not just one or two people, but it was quite strong. Mm. Um, the other thing I think that really stood out in my research was that um, how intrinsic it is to senior executives. So the more senior you became, the more important your curiosity became. Mm-hmm. But not just as an individual, um, as a social player in a decision-making process, for example, if uh, you're, in a, you're, you're a member of the board and if you weren't probing the, the highest level of decision-making in an organisation, if you weren't asking probing and inquisitive questions, then you are not doing your job. But you take that level and you go down to someone who might be a junior manager, mm-hmm. there's a different view of curiosity. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, don't keep asking a question, just go and do your job. Yeah. You know, so you end up getting... This, this incredible gamut of how you need to be curious in an organisation. It seems like it, it's the more senior you become, uh, the more... Um, and people use it as wisdom. They mm. use the term wisdom to say, you know, well, he's really wise because he's always asking questions and he's always probing about things, right? Yeah. But it's just the nature of the role. It's just the way things change over time. So, yeah, so that was, that was something that, um, that added to it. But the social... And um, the other important point uh, I touched on before was the social material side of things. And uh, because I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a practice practitioner, um, people like Theodore Shatsky um, have had a big impact on the way I look at things. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elizabeth Shove um, also. And, um, you know, and uh, David Nicoloni um, all had big impacts on the way I look at the socialization of curiosity mm-hmm. in organizations as a practice rather than as a psychological uh, capability. So, so my research was really looking at the practice side of things. Yeah. And so that was what was unique about it. 
Yeah, mm. because as you're saying, someone at the ground level, maybe at the coal face, maybe even like a, a customer facing role, very functional. Mm. You know, you're just you're you're clocking in, you're doing these tasks, you're clocking out. Mm. Uh, you don't have you literally don't have time to be curious, at least mm. within the nine to five hours. Yeah, maybe you're you reflect when you get home and you put that in put into play the next day. Yeah. Uh, but it's not encouraged. You don't have time for it. No one's blocking out two hours on their diary for reflection and, and blue sky thinking. Mm. Uh, and so there's just not a, there's not a forum for it. And therefore it's you, people at that level could be the most curious, the mm. most intellectual, uh, the most capable of abstract thought as anyone in the organization but can't do it within the the practical function of their role. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, it, it's uh, it's really interesting because I looked at uh, I looked at curiosity in so many different fields. Right? It wasn't just looking at it from a management point of view. To yeah. understand management, you need to know how people look at it philosophically. Um, you also need to understand how uh, you know the neuroscience aspects of curiosity. So, um, but as I as I probed and posed all these things um right early in the piece you know uh, most people have heard this so it's not new news but you know einstein had this thing that said well people say you know you're such a brilliant man he said i'm not brilliant i'm just passionately curious mm. and I like uh, that. yeah yeah so i think that you know that those are the types of things you know so why is it so important curiosity is all about learning um, you know, the, there are many different aspects of curiosity, even psychologically, there are so many different things um, in the way you view curiosity. But the area that, in the, from a psychology point of view, that I was most interested in was the work of George Lowenstein, um, who in 1994 put together a theory of curiosity that related to the knowledge gap. So he said that, you know, curiosity is the identification of a knowledge or an information gap. Mm. Um, and that's how he defined curiosity. Um, sounds like a twig. Yeah, sounds like a twig. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and uh, in fact, that's right. And then um, the, the, the uh, I guess, the doyen of curiosity was a guy by the name of Berline, who was a British um, sociologist, a psychologist. And he um, looked at curiosity from a state and trait perspective basically saying look uh when you as an individual we all have a trait of curiosity some level of it some more intense than others and so what that means is if you're sort of uh you're asking questions a lot so people who are really have a high trait curiosity are really naturally asking lots of questions mm -hmm. right then you also have a state curiosity and that's when um you're actually walking down a road and you might see and walk past a shop and there might be a new suit in there or dress or garment or clothing um and that looks you look at it curiously i just wonder how much that's going to be and uh you see the price tag and so that that then answers your curiosity but the interesting mm -hmm. thing is your curiosity then diminishes for that thing right it's gone yeah you're not curious anymore so there, there are all these different ways of looking at curiosity and different aspects of it that impact the thinking of how people in industry and work and, and whatever uh, in science 
uh, take on curiosity. So it's really a, yeah, it's just a fascinating topic that's primarily endless. Yeah, well, that's, I'm even thinking now, I don't know how this didn't occur to me through the many conversations we've had about your thesis through the years that yeah. you could almost have turned this back on yourself. Maybe maybe this is something you could do now that you're free and clear of the thesis and, and almost think about like an autoethnographic Obviously, curiosity has informed your PhD mm. on curiosity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on, on that note, did did your work in this area, as you learned, you immersed yourself in the literature, uh, you started to gather your data. Did you find your own the nature of your own curiosity change as you learned more about it and saw what other people were, were doing? Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. So let me just explain something on there. I'll try and, I'll try and do it as quick as I can. Sure. Um, when I uh, did my first age assessment, and I'll never forget it because um, I was in, I was in uh, England at the time, and uh, I, Stuart was my, at that stage, he wasn't my um, supervisor, but uh, he was going to assess my first stage assessment. And um, so I sent him uh, a paper over and yeah, he said, oh, this is really good. You know, I, I think uh, you'll fly through through this on your first stage assessment. So anyway, I, I went to EGOS in Edinburgh, came back and um, I felt really comfortable about doing my first stage assessment of my PhD, which is a theoretical assessment. And so looking at all the literature mm -hmm. and uh, the literature I looked at at that time and this is where things change and how stage assessments become really important, was primarily psychological. So I was really looking at curiosity from a psych through a psychology lens. And um, so I get into the, into the room to present my... Uh, I don't know if you were there at the time, Greg, but... I can't recall if I went to your stage one, Yeah, actually. well, you would have recalled because <laughs> Stuart really, really ravaged me on that day. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't hold it back. It was really good. I mean, that's another great learning about when you do a PhD. You just have to take these things. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, I was trying, I was perplexed because on one hand he told me, you know, he thought it was really terrific. And on the other hand, you know, he really ravaged me in terms of when I finished my presentation. Mm. Um, but on reflection, what he was trying to get to, he wanted me to really look at curiosity in a different light. And... Um, and so that took me on the road to a sociological view of curiosity rather than a psychological view. Mm -hmm. And uh, I never looked back from that. So that was a key learning. So, um, and that's where I think I made the biggest turn yeah. was in my first stage assessment. It took me from one direction I was going. Mm -hmm. So out of that, I moved from leadership, just looking at curiosity and leadership, to, to top management teams and the socialization of curiosity in top management teams. Yeah, right. There's a big, there's a, and I hate using the term because I really dislike it. It's, it was a big pivot, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that occurred at that time. Yeah. That's probably the best time. Yeah, it is <laughs> the best time because it gives yeah. you a lot of time to yeah. Re yeah. rethink. Before you've gathered any data yeah. and, and any of that. You have a really good idea of what you're going to go out and look for. Yeah, I mean, I was I when in the when I was looking at the the theoretical uh, nature of curiosity, I was going right the way back to Aristotle, you know, yeah, yeah. and Plato to try and work out their view of the world when they mm. were looking up at the stars and things, yeah. you know. So, um, 
but that was great learning because you, you don't forget that stuff. Um, so, but you also need not to be afraid of changing your direction for the better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, and it sounds like you had a really supportive environment in which to make those changes and you had good guidance. And, and mm. as you say, that's, that's one of the great things. I had similar experiences with, with Stuart mm. uh, as I was going through my PhD. And, I mean, in the U.S., uh, they, you defend your dissertation mm. and it's called that for a reason mm. uh, you know you, mm. you go before a firing squad and you have to defend it mm. and so you know it, it's it's an intellectual exercise it, probably the fact that he liked your paper is why he had so many thoughts about it yeah yeah <laughs> he, he wanted well, it to be true. the best it could be yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so you and i would have met Stuart in the same place which is in the coursework units that they make all uh, research students here at UTS take, uh, and he was teaching two qualitative units at the time. Uh, and that, that's something else that I wanted to ask you about is I was, I guess I was about two years ahead of you. I was maybe halfway through when you started, yeah. and now I'm two years clear and, and you're you're finishing up. Uh, because we didn't have any of those coursework units together, but we took the same ones and had similar experiences. Uh, and you maybe even had a bit of a better cohort than I did. I was in those units with mostly honor students <laughs> mm, mm. Uh, who kind of did their year and they were, they were gone. Mm. Uh, so in terms of PhD students, there weren't too many. Uh, but did you find, as I did, uh, some comfort in the cohort of students here at UTS? Absolutely. And it's one of those things that um, I've discussed with Lewis a number of times. And I've sent notes to Stuart saying how much we were so fortunate to have those programs because they don't hold those programs like they did then. Yeah, that's right. Um, and um, those programs are so rich in terms of content, um, discussion, um, and non-formality to some extent. Uh, they were very informal. Um and uh, even though they were important, they enabled and encouraged free thinking, mm -hmm. which I thought was just wonderful. So it wasn't just, well, okay, you've learnt this, and you know, so you know, this is what a particular scholar thought. What's your view of the world? Mm. How do you see it? What experiences have you had in that area? You know, so those types of questions become really encouraging and insightful, in, um, and I think that those courses. Uh, when I started, I always remember the first course I attended, um, there was a cohort of eight, mm -hmm. one of which was an honor student and the other seven were PhD students, right. including myself. Kind of the opposite to what I had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, and I've, and we've sort of gone through together. Um, and, you know, some of those have finished up already. Um, and some of them started before me, um, and and so were well advanced um, at that stage. By the time I met up with them, um, and others have, you know, uh, came a bit later. So we're all sort of shifting together, but we've all sort of maintained some form of connection. Uh, sometimes loose, sometimes really strong. So it depends. But I think it was a really important um, part of the process of learning, and also. Um, the ability to share things, because I think 
you know, this was, I was warned many times. I said, well, David, when you actually start doing a PhD, it can be one of the loneliest things you ever do for four years. You're basically working on research that's only you are interested in, mm. that only you are relevant, that's relevant to you. And you can't really go down the road and start talking to somebody openly and saying, well, okay, this is, you know, what do you think about this? It doesn't work that way. I mean, you can, but that's not the, the direction in which most PhD scholars go. They've got to, you've got to really think through what you're trying to achieve. So, yeah, I, I, from my point of view, I think it's um, absolutely a key element because you need to maintain your san- sanity as well. Yeah. And, um, and it's also in those courses, you learn what lots of other premier scholars think or thought or approached. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a concoction of things that just enrich you as a person. Mm. And I found it to be, as you said, collaborative as well because every, yeah. they get you when you're in the beginning yeah. and you're, you're really trying, you're still, many of, you, or many of us are still trying to find our problem. Mm. Uh, and so you're in this room and I likewise only had about eight people in there with me, not as many PhD students, but, but still curious people. Uh, and with honor students, usually top of their class really switched on. Mm. Uh, I was very average undergrad, so I'm not going to pretend like (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I found my way to a PhD because of my, my high marks or anything like that. Uh, but you know, if, one of the things that I liked about Stewart's classes in particular is every single time you would present. Uh, every So they're block mode classes for listeners out there. Uh, block mode classes a couple of times a semester where you're in there all day. And every single meeting of the class, you give a presentation about where you are with your research, usually through the lens that, that Stewart has been trying to teach to you because uh, you're, you're feeling out epistemologies and methodologies and, and kind of those broad paradigms. Uh, and... I've always enjoyed, you'd be up giving your presentation, which was on paper meant to be 10, 15 minutes, but then Stuart would interrupt you five minutes in and then talk for 40 minutes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but it was always the most fascinating 40 minutes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I usually started my phone recording and just had, you know, just absorbed all his thoughts and notes and hmm. it, it didn't, most of it, I would say, uh, maybe even all of it didn't make it into my thesis, but hearing his thoughts on it and that what I said made him think that I said X, he thought Y told me something about my research that answered a question I wouldn't have even thought to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that, that was the value for me. I just, I love being in those environments with likewise intellectually curious, passionately curious people, mm. uh, in an environment that that's encouraged. Mm, mm. You know, you're not worried about competing for marks or when mm. is this assignment due? You're just there to, uh, like Aristotle mm. and every, yeah. everyone back at the beginning, uh, just encouraged to, yeah, lose yourself in, in those, those curious thoughts. Uh, and something while you were, while you were discussing that, I was reminded of when the pandemic kind of early 2020, which at that time I was finishing my thesis, uh, but you and me and Lewis, who listeners will meet in another episode, we would have accountability meetings uh, over coffee. We would catch up weekly. And before the pandemic, we were on campus doing that. And it was always the same day of the week, same time, same cafe. Mm. Uh, and we would always leave those meetings with notes about what we wanted to achieve over the next week. And we'd come back and just check in 
you know, in a, in a mm. non-aggressive way, mm. check in on each other. How did you go with your goals last week? Uh, and kind of have chats about where we were. And for me, it was, it's a nice feeling uh, that I got far enough along in the PhD that I was answering questions rather than asking them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that made me feel like uh, it, it added some legitimacy to what I was doing. I, yeah. felt, I felt like I'd actually gotten somewhere with it. Uh, and we moved those to Zoom when mm. the pandemic started uh, and and carried those through quite a while. And that, I think, was, even though you guys, I guess, maybe technically weren't in my, my cohort, quote unquote, mm. because I was just right at the end when you guys were kind of in the middle. Yeah. Uh, but I have to say, that was that's one of my fondest memories of the whole thing, because it really, even with that transition into the pandemic and lockdown and switching to online teaching, uh, while I was trying to finish off the thesis, so pandemic hit March 2020. I submitted at the end of June 2020 uh, while also teaching mm. 10 subjects that semester. You you were there. You remember. Yep. Uh, and you were at the time dealing with all of the changes you had to make that you've already discussed with your, your data collection. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll value that for the rest of my life. I'm, mm. Mm. I don't know if that's interesting to listeners, but I just wanted to tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And, you know, the interesting thing is... Um, uh, now we're at the other end. We're, we're trying to work out what we're going to do next, and um, and particularly with our writing. Mm. So um, uh, Lewis and I have restarted those those oh, okay. uh, yeah, those good. sessions again, um, and given ourselves a few goals what we want to try and do. For example, in the first quarter, second quarter, and so forth, and mm -hmm. then we just do a review of progress to try and find out how are we on track or not on track. But it's mainly around publications yep. this time. Yep. So, um, yeah, and I, and I think that's really important. It just, it just keeps you motivated and focused. Um, so that comes back to the point you raised early, you know, the, 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 this ability to get a cohort together and or get a few, a few people together who you can work with. Um, and they don't have to be in related fields, as you know. We're all in different fields. So mm -hmm. um, it, it's just we learn from all the different perspectives. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that leads me into one of my final questions for you. Uh, what is, what's on the horizon for you? Are you going to be looking to go to any conferences? You've mentioned that you're working on some publications. What, yeah. what do the next few months see for you? Um, right. So I think... Um, one thing that I'm uh, in the very early phase of doing now is um, writing a paper to go to EGOS. So it's in Greece mm -hmm. in 2023. And what is EGOS, just for those who aren't uh, It's a European group of, I think it's a European group of scholars or, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and it's most probably the European equivalent to some extent of the Academy of Management. Mm -hmm. So um, I find that I'm a little bit closer to the European style of things than I am necessary to the Academy of Management style of things. Um, mainly, it's because I'm a qualitative scholar versus I'm not. I'm not a positivist, mm -hmm. uh, which I think a lot of the American scholars are. So you know, it just feels more comfortable for me to be in that domain. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that's what I've, I'd like. And just by the way, they're both fantastic um, groups and I am a member of the Academy of Management mm -hmm. um, and I'm a member of EGOS as well. So, um, but what they do for you, I think, is that they help you get published and you learn from them. Um, so there's a lot of uh, attributes that the Academy of Management present 
you and then there's a lot of attributes you get from egos as well and you just try and look at how where do you get the best of both worlds mm-hmm. um so egos is one thing the other thing in terms of answering your question is really trying to get some papers published i'd like to try and get you know two papers published not published but um submitted and um i guess um accepted to some extent um before the middle of the year mm-hmm. perfect mm. nice one and the last question, and I think this will be the last question that I ask everybody. Uh, we've, we've spoken mostly about your life in the PhD, but I'm just curious what's happening, what, what's exciting in your life right now, or, or what, uh, what is something that you're excited about that has nothing to do with the PhD? Uh, I think it's family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think they're coming to groups that I've done this this uh this or followed this particular journey um and only coming to grips with now what it means as i come to the end of that journey mm-hmm. um and so that's that's good and i hope that i can i can um stimulate others to think that way for their future uh in in uh, in the longer term and shorter term um i've got a brother in the uk who I haven't seen for, um, well, since maybe three years. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to try and catch up with him. And he's, although he's very scholastic, um, you know, he I couldn't get him to go and do a PhD even if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's very much interested in art and the, and the creative side of things. Um, but, you know, I'd like to catch up with him and... and um, just hang out with him like I did when I went to uh, EGOS in Edinburgh, which was great. I mean, that's the other great thing about these conferences, by the way. You you go to different locations all around the world mm. and you meet so many different people. So that's the other thing. You know, trying to meet up with scholars who've got a similar interest would be great. Yeah, absolutely. That's, mm. uh, that's why I started this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, David, thank you very much. This is, this is the first episode and you'll always have that honor. Yeah. <laughs> and it always much. it'll always mean uh, the world to me that, that you sat down with me and did this. Yeah. All right, it's a pleasure, Greg, as always. It's always great to catch up and uh, I always enjoy our conversations and they've been a bit of a stimulus for me right throughout my PhD, so so thank you.